listen to me. The medallion acts as a spiritual amplifier. It magnifies the power inside you. This half gives power over the body. The other half gives power over the soul. Legend says it can transform a man into a bodiless ghost and give him strength of steel. Power of body and strength of steel. All right, so where's the on button? Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. If you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast called Around the World in 80s Movies. Find the link at my website, Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into another of the entries in the films of the 1990s that are based off of a video game. I covered two specifically dealing with martial arts video games. We had all of the Mortal Kombat movies and then the Street Fighter movies, so might as well finish it up here with another one from the 1990s called Double Dragon. Double Dragon came out in 1994. It is actually the first of the martial arts films based on video games that came out in the 1990s, but just barely. They all kind of came out lumped in within a year of each other between Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat as well. Double Dragon is a PG-13 rated movie. It does have violence and language. The runtime is an hour and 36 minutes. The main stars are Scott Wolf, Mark DeCascos, Robert Patrick, and Alyssa Milano. Christina Wagner and Julia Nixon get supporting roles as well. The director is James Yukich, and the screenplay credited to Michael Davis and Peter Gould. If you've never heard of Double Dragon, it's kind of a video game brawler, not quite as futuristic as it's depicted in this movie. It was for a period of time in the late 1980s, the number one coin-operated game in America. It was created by a a Japanese game company called Technos in 1987, and then became a pretty big smash hit, both not only in the arcades as well as home consoles. The idea for the Double Dragon adaptation into a movie came from this up-and-coming film producer named Don Murphy. He was just out of USC Film School. He was connecting with a fellow producer named James Hampshire, and they were looking for ideas to turn into feature films and Hampshire, she wanted to do a little bit more serious films. She did uh, kind of cultivated natural-born killers around this time. But Murphy happened to be a, a huge comic book geek. He spent a lot of time in comic book shops, and his interests tended toward more fun, action-packed adventures. Now, one fateful day, Murphy happened to be hanging out at his favorite comic book store in Los Angeles, and he decided to play one of the arcade games that they had there, Double Dragon 3. And Murphy noticed while he was playing that there seemed to be a very standard quest mythology to this game, something that could probably work if it were going to be adapted into a gritty martial arts movie. So Murphy made some calls. He called various companies in Japan. He wanted to find out who actually owned the Double Dragon rights so he could purchase them out to make into a feature film. Eventually, all of those calls led Murphy to uh, being directed toward this video game company, in Texas called Trade West, and they published certain game titles for North American market from Japan. And after settling into an informal agreement with the Lelands, the owners of Trade West, 
Murphy shopped the idea for a Double Dragon feature around to his Hollywood connections. His friend Peter Rice, he recommended talking to this man named Ash Shaw. Shaw ran this film and home video company called Imperial Entertainment with his older brothers, Sunil and Sundip. Now, Imperial, they had action movie clout. They had produced several starring vehicles for Jean-Claude Van Damme around this time. They forged the contract to do a Double Dragon feature with Trade West. Now, Imperial announced the Double Dragon adaptation back in February of 1991, and they had a target release date of September of 1991 at that time. Imperial, they had a a 10-picture deal with Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Universal Pictures, they were negotiating. They wanted one of the slots in the contract so that they could cast Jean-Claude into their film, Sudden Death. And they did this in exchange for distributing Double Dragon. Paul Dini? pretty well known today among people who enjoy comic books. He was the Emmy award-winning writer at that time of the Tiny Toon Adventures, and he was, in the future, he was the co-creator of Harley Quinn. He was signed on to script what was then called Double Dragon the Movie. After several drafts, another writer was brought in, this future young adult novelist named Neil Schusterman. He came in to revise when Dini left the project to work on Batman the Animated Series. The script during this time, it incorporated many of the game's characters, but mixed with new ones that they created specifically for the movie, including the main villain of the film. And the attempt here at this time was really to push the game into the mainstream and so that it would spin off into other media, which it did during this time, including a Marvel comic book series. DIC's animated series was created for television, and there were a lot of other merchandise tie-ins around this time. Now, the script was later rewritten by two guys who were just out of film school and they were looking to get into the Screenwriters Guild, so this was a big break for them. Michael Davis, who, if you know your screenwriters today, he was the future writer and director for the action comedy called Shoot 'Em Up, and his partner in writing, Peter Gould, he was future producer for such big shows over the last decade or so, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Now, Davis and Gould's agent, he had been shopping around their spec script for the superhero feature called The Censor, which the Shaw brothers enjoyed for its lighthearted humor. And they thought that uh, the Schusterman script that fellow producer Alan Schechter, he was commissioning, that was a little too hard-hitting and it would be just too expensive to bring to life. So Davis and Gould were brought in by the Shaw brothers to complete about five drafts over five weeks. They were really racing here to try to hone things down, to try to appeal to what the Shaw brothers felt was the actual demographic that they were aiming for, kids who loved the video game. And that wasn't really easy to do for a game that really involves two guys, two brothers, beating up people to a bloody pulp. So Imperial was going to lose their distribution deal, though, at that time with Universal. If they didn't get the film ready by a certain date and they really needed to get a new script immediately, and this is why Davis and Gould were hired. Universal pushed it through, not on their own label, through Gramercy Pictures, in which they partnered with Polygram because Universal, they had a similar property that they were developing in Street Fighter just six weeks later, so they didn't want a conflict there, so they used one of their subsidiaries. A Double Dragon animated series was slated to debut in the fall of 1993, and that was meant to generate buzz for the film's new Christmas release date back in 1993. Emmy Award-winning music video and concert video director Jim Yukich, he was encouraged to take on Double Dragon as his first feature by this Joel Silver protege I just mentioned, Alan Schechter. And Schechter had worked for Yukich actually in the past, as well as his producing partner Paul Flattery, 
He was a production assistant on many of Flattery Yukich Inc.'s music videos and their shows. Their resume included a lot of big-name talent at that time. Pat Benatar, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, Phil Collins. Schechter felt that Yukich really had the vision to make a dynamite action flick if he was given a chance. And the Shaw brothers, they saw his resume and they approved. They hoped, really, that Yukich's music connections were going to result in bringing aboard some incredible music talent for the soundtrack and perhaps even some of the roles that were in the movie. Now, the budget for Double Dragon, the movie at that time, was going to be $8 million, and the production start date eventually became May of 1993. Yukich envisioned Double Dragon as kind of like a 90-minute music video that might appeal to kids and teens. It was going to have a lighthearted and funny tone rather than some sort of all-out violent brawler. Yukich did feel a bit dubious about the film's title, Double Dragon. It did carry the name recognition that they wanted to bring in the kids that love the game of the same name, but Yukich felt that if you weren't really a gamer, especially an adult or maybe just even teenagers who were unfamiliar, they might deem this based on the title as a bad martial arts flick. You know, this was kind of a double-edged sword. Now, in 1993, the release and subsequent failure of Super Mario Brothers caused ripples among the studios that were trying to make video game adaptations into movies. You know, most of the other productions of video game properties, they might have felt that they needed to pause on this, but Yukich actually thought this was going to be the opposite for them because they felt, at the very least, that they could make a much better movie than Super Mario Brothers. But the wrong lessons from Super Mario Brothers seem to have gotten learned Rather than realize that the film was bad because it lacked a quality story or dialogue or characters, the producers observed that Super Mario Brothers probably failed because it didn't deliver in the action department. And action is what people like video games for, not for a convoluted story. So the makers of Double Dragon decided they were going to double down on delivering double the action. Now, the finished plot of this film is set in the presumptive year of 2007. Of course, this came out much earlier, in 1994, in this city called New Angeles. It's really Los Angeles, but kind of a mix of Los Angeles all the way to San Diego. A city constructed after this giant earthquake struck Southern California at some point in the near future. Gangs and criminals, they have their run of the streets at night. Outside of the very ineffective police department, there's a vigilante group called the Power Corps. And they're organized by this teenager named Marion Delario. And Power Corps is really the only force other than the feeble cops willing to take on the street gangs. Marion stumbles across a couple of martial artist orphaned brothers named Jimmy and Billy Lee, and she recruits them to the side of the good guys. And their top adversary is this megalomaniac tycoon named Victor Geisman, a.k.a. Kogashuko, known as the Shadow Master. He's taking over the streets with his ability to change into shadow form, and then he could also jump into the bodies of other people, to control them. The Lee brothers and their guardian, Satori, they have half of this powerful, mystical, ancient Chinese medallion. Kokashuko happens to have the other, and he's going to do whatever it takes to unite these halves of the medallion so that he can have unlimited power. How convenient that the second half of the medallion that he stole from this very minuscule village in China we see at the beginning of the film happens to be in the same city that he's taking over. Much more to the plot than that, but, you know, you're not watching Double Dragon for the plot, really, are you? 
Mark DeCascos, he was the first actor hired for the film. Phenomenal martial artist. He was the son of a martial arts teacher, so he had been exposed to martial arts pretty much his entire life, although he channeled his physical training to other physical activities like sports, gymnastics, ballet, jazz, what have you. He was very athletic and very gifted with his body. He did sprain his ankle, though, shortly before shooting. He did most of his scenes, actually, for the first few weeks of the shoot with his ankle taped up very tightly and, despite it all, performed admirably. Scott Wolf, he was hired for the on-screen brother of Mark DeCascos, even though they looked nothing alike. Billy Lee, DeCascos provided many of the martial arts skills, so they didn't have as much pressure to put another martial artist into the film. So they went for a little bit more acting experience for the brother. You know, specifically, Wolf had comedic acting chops that they were looking for. And Wolf said he related to the character of Billy Lee because he too had to mature prematurely. And the character uses his childlike persona to try to reclaim the sense of being the kid that he was never quite allowed to be, just like Scott Wolf did in life. Alyssa Milano, she's sporting a very short cropped blonde hairdo for this film. She plays the tough and streetwise Marion Delario. Milano, she was really pursued for the role because she carried a huge following in Japan. That's where the game is from. And so if nothing else, even if it might be a bust in the United States, it should be a pretty big hit in Japan. Marion Delario, the She's the daughter of a cop, but she's also secretly the leader of that peacekeeping gang of vigilantes called the Power Corps, who are trying to take the city back from the criminal elements. Very key for this film. Robert Patrick, he's the heavy of the film. He's hot off the portrayal of the T-1000 in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. He's playing Koga Shuko, and Patrick said that his role in Double Dragon was the most he'd ever actually been paid for any acting gig, but he also accepted the role because... It was, in many ways, the opposite of the way that he portrayed his role in T2. You know, they were both heavies of the film, but this character is much more flamboyant, much more using his humor and his personality, something that, as the robotic T-1000, he could not do. He called Kogashuko very fun to play, a vain megalomaniac psycho character, and he called a cross, kind of prophetic in a way, he called it a cross between Donald Trump and Charles Manson. Now, if you follow your celebrity gossip during this period, you know that Alyssa Milano actually found love at first sight here with her co-star, Scott Wolf. They had gone to a dance club with members of the film crew, and they started playing games to get to know each other, like 20 Questions and Truth or Dare. And When somebody dared them to kiss each other, that's when they felt sparks really flew. And so they dated the rest of the shoot, and Milano, at the end of it, wrote this very lengthy, very heartfelt love poem after they returned to do continued work in Los Angeles. And soon, these lovebirds moved in together after the shoot. Milano believed that she had found her soulmate. She even had Wolf's initials tattooed on her right ankle and told her mom almost immediately that he was the man she was going to marry. After a few months, Wolf did pop the question he did it by hiding a vintage 1940s engagement ring inside of a pumpkin. And then Milano used that pumpkin she was carving to carve a heart, as well as the phrase, Alyssa loves Scott, lest there be any doubt. It's not really made public as to what caused the breakup between Milano and Wolf, but they did break up the following year. They had been together about 18 months when that happened. 
Many years later, in fact, in recent years, Milano has divulged that she underwent two abortions during this period, feeling like she wasn't really ready to be a mother. This may have precipitated their eventual breakup, but Milano did feel heartbroken at the time, but she remained friends with Scott Wolf, and eventually they collaborated. They were the main voice talent in another movie, 2001's Lady and the Tramp, Two Scamps Adventure. So, you know, sparks may not have flown in the end for their relationship, but they still felt a personal connection enough to continue to know each other over the years. Now, the script was deemed acceptable. They determined it really didn't have the kind of comedic energy that they were hoping for, though. So they brought in some additional help. Uncredited screenwriter Mark Brazil. He was a friend of Yukich. He had worked on his writing team in the past. Brazil would later, by the way, if you know your television shows, he would create Third Rock from the Sun as well as co-create that 70s show. He was brought in here, though, at this time to punch up the comedy. He gave such pithy lines like to Alyssa Milano, she's the star of, of course, the TV show Who's the Boss. So she had kind of meta lines she would use during battle, like, who's the boss now? And in one particular moment, she says to Christina Wagner, Wagner at that time was working on the TV soap opera General Hospital. She said, you know, Milano delivered the line, generally I put people in the hospital. Kokoshuko's henchmen, they're called Huey and Lewis, and that resulted in Kokoshuko saying the line to them, Huey, Lewis. Any news? Now, because of the Los Angeles riots of 1991, the makers of the film took care not to choose a specific ethnic slant when they were depicting the gangs dominating the city. They looked more toward this 1979 film from Walter Hill called The Warriors for their overall composition of what the gangs should look like, although done with a much more comedic vibe. Each of these gangs would have their own look, their own vibe. You had the clowns and the mohawks and the maniacs and the geeks who wore pocket protectors sporting computer nerds. And then the postmen who used their mailbags as weapons and, you know, that sort of thing. Cinematographer Tony Mitchell, he was somebody who was brought in because he'd worked with Yu Kitch and Schechter before. He only lasted a couple of days, though. He had suffered this back injury while he was filming with this handheld camera during the sequence, a big action scene. And he did try to continue working while he was laying on a stretcher, but it just didn't work. So Neil Shaw said they could not get very far working this way. So they called for another cinematographer to be brought in at the last minute. So they got Gary Kibbe. And Kibbe didn't really have that kind of sense of style that Mitchell had that Yukich wanted. So, you know, maybe the film lost something in the switchover after a couple of days that they weren't really intending, but they were doing the best they could with the difficult situation. Now, during the shoot, they also were trying to incorporate extra footage to try to capture for this interactive video game that was going to be tied in by Trade West. The game ended up getting scrapped because Trade West determined that it was just never going to be completed in time to coincide with the movie, so it really kind of defeated the purpose. So I guess fortuitously, they didn't plunk any more money than they had to into that concept, considering... The film did not do so well at the box office in the end. Now, the movie was shot in Alan Schechter's hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. The Pacific Ocean was represented here by Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River, substituting for the fictional Hollywood River for the purpose of the film. That was once Hollywood Boulevard before the big earthquake, but now it's a big river. Famous Hollywood landmarks you will see around the city, Man's Chinese Theater, the Capitol Records Building, etc. They were recreated as crumbling edifices around the river. 
There's also a half-scale version of the world-famous Hollywood sign that you'll see in this film. It gives the semblance of some sort of authenticity there. It actually looks pretty good, at least in that respect. The use of the river necessitated its own kind of river of red tape. Federal and state agencies needed to be involved to allow them to do things like operate speedboats. And there was even a portion of the river that was set on fire following a controlled explosion. In fact, I caused a lot of interesting reactions there. The special effects wizards, they worked on such films as Apocalypse Now, Joseph Lombardi, and his son Paul. They handled the explosive sequence where 500 feet of the Hollywood River, Cuyahoga here, engulfed in flames. The stunt really took about six to 8,000 gallons of propane and a mile of two and a half inch pipe, as well as 32 electronically controlled fire station floats that were all around the water. Yukich jokingly placed two beef francs on a stick on the bank of the river to see if the heat generated was going to cook them enough to eat. He was disappointed, though, that they remained raw at the end of this. And although there were warnings on local news stations that all of this was going to take place, the pyrotechnics that were going to be occurring was well publicized. There were many uninformed nearby residents in Cleveland that were absolutely not amused by this explosion. It resulted in about 210 phone calls within 10 minutes of the explosion taking place to 911 emergency services. Now, producers Alan Schechter and Ash Shaw, they wanted the future to look like a realistic portrayal of what things could presumably appear like in 15 years in terms of vehicles and weapons and wardrobe and technology. They really wanted it to stay grounded, not necessarily a bunch of hoverboards and flying cars. No space travel, no laser guns, none of that stuff. So the guns in the film were based on actual modern gun designs that they modified a little bit to have extra features like grenade launchers under the barrel for crowd control, maybe a fancier looking scope that could be used at night in any kind of weather. The guns actually happen to be realistic looking enough for a real life cop to want to get a closer inspection. And when he did, he commented about how he would like to use something like that out in the field if they had such a gun available. Now, partway through the shoot, the Shaw brothers did want to move back from Cleveland back to Los Angeles. They wanted to film the power core scenes and other sequences because of inconsistent Cleveland weather that was causing some production delays. And there just happened to be better places for locale work in Los Angeles. Due to the move, though, the union contract needed to get renegotiated, and that took many weeks to happen. When the film was finally done, the MPA bestowed upon it a rating of PG-13. Yukich thought, you know, that might be a little too strong because they were going for a little bit younger demographic, a little bit more of the 8 to 12-year-olds. So Yukich offered to edit the film's violence a little bit more to get a PG. They were hoping not to alienate any of that young crowd. But Alan Schechter, who really had wanted to make this more toward adults anyway, he waved off Yukich. He said that the PG-13 actually could work in the movie's favor because kids and some adults would probably think that this film is even hipper and cooler than what really they were kind of shooting, which is kind of a glorified Disney movie. Also, the script happened to be too long. The footage was difficult to edit down without the story seeming really choppy. They really wanted to make a film that would appeal to everybody. Unfortunately, what they really managed to make is one that didn't appeal to anybody. Now, Double Dragon, it's a mishmash of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, comic book caliber camp, some Home Alone-style pratfalls, Power Rangers color schemes, Super Mario Brothers, of course, the mucky visuals that were in that. You could see that all over here. 
Double Dragon ends up being one of the worst and probably the least memorable of the 1990s video game film adaptations. Grading characters, absolutely clueless direction, the story gets lost under rampant CG, cluttered sets. It's really an ugly, unpalatable mess. And despite a pretty big budget for sets and costumes and some decent special effects, Double Dragon really failed to crack the top 10 when it was released into theaters. It made a paltry $2.3 million domestically. Whether you believe it actually was limited by an $8 million budget, some quotes are up to $20 million, so somewhere in that range. And by the time it was released, the game's core fans, they were getting a little older. They were too old to be entertained by such a kiddie movie. The PG-13 rating probably didn't help it reach pre-adolescent audience that might enjoy this film a little bit more. So a lot of those kids who, in 1987, were really enjoying Double Dragon, they had already moved on to more popular video games like Street Fighter II, as well as Mortal Kombat. As far as other things that detract from the film, you know, playing brothers in martial arts, DeCascos, he's the only one really with the fighting skills to deliver any kind of on-screen whoop-ass. Scott Wolf, hired primarily for his comedic personality, doesn't really give you a lot of the humor that you're looking for, or at least that you might expect from him. Obvious stunt doubles, they're used in many scenes, necessitating great physical feats. I think if DeCascos' fighting skills were not the most impressive aspect of the movie, maybe there might be more interest for the duration. Robert Patrick here, he gets top billing. Whatever malice his character has to evoke gets lost under this kind of wardrobe and look. Hairstyle crosses vanilla ice with Wesley Snipes as he appears in New Jack City. This is really a wasteland of botched ideas, cluttered, ugly visuals, as I mentioned, noise, all of that trying to hide that there really are not very many concrete ideas to be found underneath. In retrospect, Yukich says that he made so many mistakes as a first-time director here. Not only a first-time director, but really, this was his only big feature film. You know, Schechter had really brought in Yukich to make a top-flight action flick. Yukich, he would have wanted a kid's movie that had adult appeal, much like he claims Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. He wanted to go for that vibe where adults could be just as entertained as the kids, even though it is, in essence, a kid's film. But Schechter was a friend, so Yukich found it difficult to just say no to him, especially since he was getting a big break because of him. And Schechter was somebody into end-of-the-world scenarios anyway, and he pushed for what would be a post-apocalyptic setting for no really apparent reason other than the fact that he thought it was cool. Yukich claims he never really thinks about making Double Dragon anymore over the years for a variety of reasons. He says that the problem was that there never really was a clear and uniform direction for where to go, at least not from the outset. Everybody, from the various producers, the writers, the actors, they all had their own visions of what Double Dragon was and should be. So Yukich blames himself for not being that person to securely take the reins and absolutely insist that everybody do things his way. He just was so overwhelmed by the experience of directing a high-profile feature with a substantial budget for its era. Also, a big factor was that there was nobody around who really had any relation to the original video game at all that could be providing feedback on what Double Dragon was, at least in its concepts, and for those things that should and should never occur in a story based on the game. Double Dragon, in the end, it's a disappointment it's a humorous martial arts film, but it's neither as funny nor as well choreographed from an action perspective. 
The biggest disappointment, I think, will come for the fans of the video game, which primarily constitutes the people who want to view this film the most. The film barely adheres to the storyline of the game. In the end, it's only recommended for either people who saw the film through the undiscriminating eyes of youth and maybe are unapologetically nostalgic, or maybe if you're some sort of movie masochist who enjoys very kitschy, wrong-headed attempts to try to capitalize on a popular trend, things that happen so frequently, at least during this era of the 1990s, you might find some enjoyment, maybe a lot of enjoyment, out of tearing this film apart. But I think even those viewers looking to make fun of this film as unintentionally funny, camp comedy, maybe you'll even succumb to the kind of boredom that is induced by brain-numbing, soul-sucking experiences like Double Dragon's boundless ineptitude. So I'm going to give Double Dragon, on my four-star scale, one and a half stars out of four. One and a half stars means that I do think it's a poor movie. Definitely not one I would recommend to almost anybody but the aforementioned people who saw it when they were really young and still have fond memories of that period of their life or people who just really want to drink a few beers with their friends and totally shred on this film. It's That's really the main audience's that might get a kick out of Double Dragon, but if you're not really in any of those camps, I cannot, in good conscience, recommend Double Dragon as anything more than one and a half stars out of four. So that ends Double Dragon. It didn't have a big footprint in films. I think there was a Japanese video game based on it that came out that never really quite made it to the United States. Check that out if you're a completist. You know, as far as what I'm going to be covering next week, I'm going to continue on with the video game adaptations with the film that I've mentioned in almost every single episode so far. That film from 1993 that kind of kick-started the video game adaptation revolution of this period, Super Mario Brothers from 1993, starring Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo, as well as Dennis Hopper. Check that out if you haven't done so in a while and you have to be a real movie masochist to really sit through that one i had a hard time revisiting that recently so that i could deliver next episode's review but i will get to it and it definitely has a lot of interesting facts about it that you will enjoy even if you don't enjoy the movie so check out super mario brothers for the next episode if you want to write to me, if you have your own opinions you want to share about Double Dragon or any other movie from the 1990s that you want me to cover, you can find my contact information on my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are also there if you want to get in touch. But email is the preferred way if you really want to say something to me that I can respond to easily. But until next time, thank you, everyone, for joining me as we travel to the 90s and beyond. Oh,